Blog Talk Radio. Network. I'm your host, Tori Gates, author of the Brown Posey books, A Moment in the Sun, and Live from the Cafe. Life Signs and Fortune Cookies is the second of a series of poems and short stories from author Melanie Sims, recollections of life, love, and events that seem inconsequential but have reason. Melanie joins us today. Melanie, welcome aboard. Thank you. Great to be here, Tori. Well, Life Signs and Fortune Cookies, the title seems to be explained very well there, but especially in the first poem. Maybe you could begin by telling us a little bit about um, what prompted to bring these together and how this first one sort of, it seems like that was the, the impetus for the whole thing. Oh, which, you mean the poem about the fortune cookie or the short story, Life Signs and Fortune Cookies? Well, the first page is is uh, the poem. You prompt interesting mm-hmm. discussions. I love it. Oh, yeah. You know, it's interesting. Actually, I, I got the idea for the, the theme of the book from the short story, um, and I just mm-hmm. happened to have a poem about the fortune cookie that I had done some time back. And I just remembered and recollected in my head, oh, hey, I can actually pull these together and make them into a whole, you know, a title for the book. And um, so, you know, I was just kind of surprised that 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 was just, you know, a very nice coincidence. And I've always liked fortune cookies anyway. So it seemed like something fun that I could pull off, you know, and that inspired creativity for the for the book. Yeah. And and that was an actual fortune cookie. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I actually, actually, this happened actually in the uh, Chinese restaurant. I mean, it's not all, you know, I like to mix uh, reality with with fiction um, to Mm -hmm. give it that sense of reality, to give it that primer and that base. And, um, you know, I remember this happened to me when I was at a Chinese restaurant. I I asked for a cookie, and I think, I don't know if I looked depressed or what, but the guy just gave me a whole big basket of cookies and take them. (laughs) I'm like, wow, thanks. I mean, that sticks in your mind something easy, all the cookies, you know. So, um, and then that kind of that kind of you know, remain, I don't know, led into a short story I'd written, which actually did happen after my father died. Um, I had been, you know, obviously very discouraged about losing my father, and I had alone that Christmas, that particular Christmas holiday, and I there was nothing open but a Chinese restaurant. And I went in and, you know, as I do, I ordered food and grabbed the cookie as I usually do. And I opened up the cookie and the message inside the cookie was one of the last discussions my father and I ever had. And normally you might think, oh, that's coincidental, but the message was so prominent and it was just so finite, you know, exactly dressing what we talked about that it just lifted my spirit the whole rest of the holiday. (laughs) 
you know, and that story um, re- regarding your father was was very pointed for me because my father passed away of lung cancer, and yet he did Mine not did smoke. Mine did too. Yeah, I lost my father the same way, but he did smoke. Yeah. Mhm. And that was such a really interesting story. Um, your father's discussion, in without giving the whole thing away. The yeah. visions that your father appeared to be having of mm-hmm. because of because of his I think obviously that had to do with his military background. It was sort of that dreamscape that he was having, but mm-hmm. uh, that was quite a story where that uh, you know that he was having, and it also seemed to really show how close you were with your dad. Yeah. Well, there were a lot of things my father and I talked about. I mean, we had our we definitely had our strains and stresses. But we would yep. talk all night about philosophy or science fiction or space travel. We always had that same passion for spirituality and so many different things uh, about the unexplained and the undiscovered. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think he probably, he was an artist, but I think he also should have been a scientist because he had so much curiosity about scientific things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and it, it just seemed to be uh, as you told the story of, of what your father was going through, what you both were going through at the end. Which, mm-hmm. and and I remember from a distance uh, my father's own decline, which was um, difficult. I mean, it was difficult from a distance. It was especially difficult for my mom because she was his caregiver, and yeah, yet it was like there's so much going on between the lines of that story in terms of the relationship. And it, as you say, there every, I think every parent and child has strains, but mm-hmm. that you could share those kinds of subjects. And I loved especially how you could, the, the love of science fiction, you and he shared, that's, that, yeah. there's so much there. <laughs> and now he turned yeah. you on to that, obviously. Yeah, my mother was not for it. She did not like ghosts or, you know, aliens or space. That doesn't mean she she was a wonderful woman, but that was definitely something that my dad and I, that was our thing. We were the only ones together glued to the television or or glued to a radio show, you know. So it was like that was our bonding, you know, science fiction and spirituality and ghosts. (laughs) That's really cool. And, um, again, we we talked about, the restaurant experience too. Um, yeah. All of that mm-hmm. just there's something there's something there that just wrapped all that together and um and considering oh what there were other too, things too yeah not just the cookie I mean there were just so many yeah. other things that some of them I want to explore in other stories that really made me and I don't think it was like just my psychological desire to have him live because a lot of people could say oh that's just because your mind's playing tricks and you want him alive but. There were things that, at least to my perception, were beyond. They were extrasensory. And like, Dad's talking to me, <laughs> you know. So, that's well, interesting you to know, kind of keep those in our stories and collect them, yeah. And it, it did seem like, and like he even said, he said, I don't know how I'll do it, but I'll find a way to get in touch mm-hmm. with you. And yep. I think, I want to think we all kind of have that a little bit because, um I mean, um, I'm the youngest in my family. My siblings are all still alive. And mm-hmm. when dad passed away, I think it was one thing. And then when mom passed away a few years later, it was an, a second where it was kind of like, I think at that point for me, I was reminded of something that an old friend had said about a mm-hmm. passing of a pet. And she said, you're going to have reminders. 
you're going to yeah. see them again. They're they're always going mm-hmm. to kind of be there, not to scare you or not to bother you. They're just kind of letting you know right. we're watching. It's okay. And mm-hmm. and it sounds like it sounds like it sounds like your dad was able to do that. Yes, he was. And I remember I felt that before, right before I'd gone into, I had, I had a serious, I had a severe infection. I had to go in for emergency mm-hmm. surgery at Geisinger. And I didn't even know mm-hmm. I was that sick. And I felt my father. I'm like, Dad, what are you doing here? I was literally saying, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Am I going to, am I sick? Am I going to die? Yep. Well, two days later, mm-hmm. I ended up in a hospital. <laughs> you know, interesting mm-hmm. stuff. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you still have? That's why I called it life signs. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Do, do you still get them now and then? Yeah, not not always as much. Um, I, I think it's whenever I need it, you know, if there's something really, mm-hmm. really significant going on that I need. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think about my parents. I, I think they're kind of there when they need them, you know. But they let you, yeah, you have to live your own life. They don't interfere. You know, you have to live your own life. It's 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 funny sometimes when it, you feel like like one of the members of your family has suddenly sort of morphed into one of your parents when you hear certain things that they say. Mm-hmm. But I think mm-hmm. I think Absolutely. that's just something. That, <laughs> but I think that's also something that's just kind of like part of you just wants to say, uh, okay, mom, let can you let sis <laughs> come back now? But that's not a bad thing. I I, I think that's right. just something that's handed down to each of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do too. There's definitely something living outside of death, I think. That's cool. Um, I definitely want to go back to some of the influences that came with your father. But uh, as Mm -hmm. we move on into this book, um, you have a number of poems for this fellow named Jack. And I was (laughs) really interested in a couple of of them in particular. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, for example... Isaiah is is really it's it's like for me it's it, uh, one of the things I love about certain poets and and it is that it doesn't always have to rhyme it, you can tell mm-hmm. a story in a certain mm-hmm. meter without yes. having to do that and you tell these brief little stories like the one this the Isaiah and the snowman both of these for Jack mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. I'd love to know it's like tell us a little about Jack if you can and and, and how did these come about for him. <laughs> well, it, uh, Jack, I won't say his real name, but he was somebody I actually met when I first came to Pennsylvania in 2001, and he was a Coast Guard mm-hmm. officer, and I, he, you know, I don't know, it was like electrical, and I met this person, and, you know, sometimes think, oh, you're just being over-romantic, or, but for mm-hmm. me, anyway, my personal experience with this man was just electric. It wasn't just sexual or romantic or it was something that was, I don't know. It was like, I knew this person, the connection was like literally sparked. And I kept having these spiritual experiences when I was around him, like memories of, I keep seeing my memory with him resurfacing consistently about a past life. And, and I, I, you know, I investigated that in counseling and psychics. I'm like, what's going on? Is something my, my making us up? But it was so strong. I'd never felt like that when I met somebody. And I, can, I had to explore it. And so I did through my poetry and later through my short stories. And one of the poems actually won the Poet Laureate Prize, which was another poem for him. And I actually asked his permission. I said, you know, we were, he'd already, he'd actually married somebody else. And I didn't even know he was seeing her. But... 
um, you know, he um, he basically said, yeah, you have permission, and it's fine. Um, and so, you know, it's just, I don't know, I, I, he didn't understand it at all because he's very strict Christian. And, you know, Christians tend not to believe in past lives and reincarnation. They have their own way of looking at things. And, um, yeah. but I had to explore it because it was, for me, it was just so real. And it just created so much wonderful poetry, though. As painful it was to lose him. Um, and it, it nearly killed me. It was that, it was that attached to him. Um, it, it brought forth so much work. And so, you know, I really believe that he was a soulmate or, or what we call a twin flame, which are often here sometimes to teach us things, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, necessarily mean that we're supposed to be together forever. So I had to explore a lot of the interface. It, it, it taught me how to love myself more, how to learn to let go mm-hmm. and to realize that life doesn't always give us everything we want. I had to explore religion and Christianity. I mean, it's just, it, it opened up so many wellsprings of curiosity for me. So I have to thank him for that, even though I wish he'd pick me. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. It's, um, it, and, and I look at this fellow, and it's like, it sounds like he was a mix of, of different, per, he, he had a unique personality, but it seems like he yes. had interesting little, there's like little taps in to his personality from different areas. His Christianity would be one thing, but then when mm-hmm. I, I look at some of some of the poetry, I, he comes off as a bit of a charmer and a bit of a bit of a smooth talker. And that's like, yeah, hmm, he was like he could be a snake. Yeah, but he was also a, a learning disability specialist with a psychological background. So, you know, those oh, guys wow. can be pretty charmer. <laughs> they can be, yeah, yeah, they can be very intelligent and smooth. You're right, but he was a, he was a genius, an absolute genius. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. it was quite an experience. What? Yeah. Well. One thing about the writing experience, when it comes to poetry, and I've, my poetry is more songwriting, or at least it used to be, um, mm-hmm. is it different when, like, when you're talking about something or thinking of someone as emotional as, as you had a connection with Jack, did, mm-hmm. did the poetry for him come out in an emotional way? Did it come out in, like, all of a sudden you've got it? Or was it one of those things where you wrote something down and you really had to kind of go back and... And cross it out. No, that's a lovely question. What a lovely question, Tori. Um, You know, and it's such a, a, you can tell you're a writer to ask that. Um, You know, I I think that it was really a mixture of things for me. Um, One of them, though, was that overarching passion because the the feelings that I had for him were so electric and so strong. Mm It just came out of that sense of spiritual, emotional, chemical connection. And it was like everything mm-hmm. from me to him was just plugged right in. And it was like it was like everything was all my neurons and, I mean, my cells, everything was just lit up. And it was like, man, I'm alive. So, like, I, I had to write about it. It was like, and, mm-hmm. I, again, I, and I had to capture it not only to clear it out, to try to make sense of it, but it so much was lit up that like I was writing from everything, you know, and and it was a wonderful experience too. For writers, I think we almost get addicted to writing because when you do it long enough, it's like I've got to write, I've got to write, you know, and and it has a lot to do with just the wonderful freedom and creativity and 
all those wonderful things, emotions we can tap into, not only the pain and the sorrow, but the joy. And and all these things really give us, um, as writers, a, 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 a door in maybe to to the higher the higher spiritual realms. Uh, I think many poets mm-hmm. have often spoke of their own writing like that. And though some people say, ah, you know, it's just creativity or whatever. No, I, I think it's more than that. And so it's wonderful, you know, be able to draw from all those things. It's and it's it's different really with each person because it's like um, when I when I read English literature and literature of the Romantic period when I was in college, one of the mm-hmm. things that one of my instructors talked about and and postulated she would postulate about the um, the the Romantic period of emotion we must get this word down we must get it down immediately and have this great outpouring and I thought <laughs> okay and. You could definitely see that in some in some poets, and then it's interesting that as time goes on, um, more contemporary poets do use their own style. And but the thing is, it's the development of one's own style that mm-hmm. that really sets a person apart. And um, I think you know, and then that's the other thing too is it's like um, I, I'm I'm kind of a believer in just just write out the first draft and just let it go. And sometimes that magic happens, but sometimes you look back at it and you're like, oh, what's, what That's I true too, the process. There's <laughs> definitely processing. And a lot of times we have to go by our skill set too. You know, if we can't write or we yep. feel we don't have it in us, that's when we have to fall back on our training and our skill. And sometimes good things come out of that too, you know, because we're just, we have that little, you know, training wheel to help us. But yeah, I often write drafts and they'll sit on. I'm like, oh, I've got this book, and I'm like sitting on it and sitting on it for like three or four years. And I'm like, Where, where's that book? And I'm like, I'm getting to it. And then I do, and suddenly, poof, it just flies out, you know. So it's you, you can't rush the process. <laughs> and that's the thing too is that in any project, sometimes you it it will go on a shelf and it will just sit there because you're doing other mm-hmm. things or right. you've you've sort of burned yourself out on it. And um, mm-hmm. I've had that issue with um, a couple of my projects where they literally sat for about three or four years one because mm-hmm. an agent was trying to push it back in the day and mm-hmm. that didn't happen and then I went back and mm-hmm. looked at it and thought it's been four years and I'm like oh and, and I thought my my writing style has changed I think I've mm-hmm. gotten a little bit better at it and then I look mm-hmm. at what I've written and I thought oh god it's a good thing this didn't get published the same thing. it's a good thing it didn't get published <laughs> I'm I'm working on my first science fiction book. I'm really excited about it, you know. But then I'm I there's mm-hmm. some parts that I haven't looked at it in six months, and I'm looking at like, okay, well, uh, this is not what I would have wanted to do. <laughs> and but it's good because I'm thinking more more scientifically because I I spent time down at NASA. I got to talk with astronauts and have dinner with them, and I got to you know, speak to a Cheyenne Mountain, a general up there. And I got to do so many different things. And now I'm, all the pieces are pulling together, you know, more, they're more mature, let's just say that. So now it's like, okay, well, this is some fun writing, but let's do this. So I'm really glad that I didn't, you know, that I sat on that for a while. I agree with you. Our guest is Melanie Sims, the author of the book Life Signs and Fortune Cookies on Brown Posey Press. I want to get back to that just a little bit more. We were talking about um, how uh, you had met this fellow Jack online, and you had this short piece, Online Lovers. Now, this one 
this one got me because I used to work for a singles publication back in the 1990s Mm -hmm. in the years before the Internet when Mm -hmm. um, this fellow I worked with had a a free publication that we would distribute and that kind of thing, and we did it the Mm old-fashioned way with delivery people and such. And I'll tell you, we got some really interesting ads. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I guess my question, I guess, would be is what got you started in the search and suddenly here's a new avenue to write about, isn't it? Um, I'm sorry, what got me being pursuing uh, Jackie through short stories, you mean, or? Well, the, the, the online search, what, 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 oh, uh-huh. I always wondered what, what brings people to that, and then that obviously led to something. Um, oh, right. Yeah, that's how I met him. You're, right, you're very right. Um, as far as what brought me to that, when I, when I was divorced, I guess, I, I, you know, it was becoming, it was still kind of a new thing. 2001. I mean, how long did we have the internet since 1990 something? I had been married all that time and I was yep. just divorced out of two years and I just discovered online dating. <laughs> and there was this site called Friend Finder and it was a mm-hmm. dating site. And I just got on there and I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And, and then I saw this guy on there and I'm like, I mean, there's some really interesting guys. You know, I, I got to meet, that's one of the fun things about internet dating. I dated an, an anesthesiologist, Russia, from Russia, and um, Chris met Jack. And so it was a really nice experience to meet so many fun people. But, you know, when I met him, it was I don't know. It, it really kind of like, you know, you can meet interesting people online if you try. But what mm-hmm. culminated the story as far as all the experiences, I think I think it was really just more of a parody on life, you know, not just the Internet. It was a parody on life on, on what we have to go through and how hard it is to make the right connection with somebody. I work as a life coach and I've been doing this for 10 years, and one of the biggest questions that I'm faced with is how do I meet somebody? You know, I'm alone, and and mm-hmm. I've had to listen to this for 10 years, so many different stories and, and problems that people are having with dating, and so, frankly, it's making me, like, turn off from dating, but, you know, <laughs> I had to explore uh, that. It helped me find some exploration on it. Well, it certainly did because it was it, it it followed the lines of some of the folks that I came in contact with who were using our service or using other ones. And mm-hmm. I will say, I I met I, I did it myself, and I met some very interesting people, some of whom have become mm-hmm. very good friends. And so mm-hmm. it was never a total loss, but at the same time, it was kind of like I think we kind of sometimes go in there to sort of find our own. We're, we're trying to build our own person. And mm-hmm. it's we're trying to build our perfect mate, and it's like um, you can't take parts of other people and make them what you want. Right, <laughs> exactly. Was, yeah, there is very, always that, um, bit, that 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 element of fraud on the online. You have to be very careful. Yeah. Now let's see some of the others here as uh, as we move on into this. Um, Oh, yes, I wanted to ask you this about the past life thing. Uh, you were talking about mm-hmm. some of the spiritual the things such as that Jack didn't really believe in, but it seems like you and your right. father had that thing. Um, yeah. Had you believed in any sort of parallel universe or past lives? Was this part of your uh, early connection with your father in science fiction, or was there something mm, else there? Not really, no. Um, I mean, I've always been, of course, spiritually natured, but – it yep. wasn't really something that 
really significantly touched me until I met him. And I hmm. think the reason, again, for that is because of this flood of memories and mm-hmm. this kind of overwhelming, uh, it's like flashbacks. I don't know how else to explain it. And, I, you know, I, I wish I could remember the name of this very famous University of Virginia psychologist who, who uh, actually writes books on past lives. And I actually spoke to him about this. And he was very intrigued. He asked me to come up to visit him at the University of Virginia, and I wanted to. And gosh darn it, I wish you could remember his name. Um, he's in the um, it's a, the psychology department, uh, a unique psychology department in Virginia. Mm. But um, but yeah, I I just um, it it just struck me. And again, like I said, I wanted to make sure I wasn't you know <laughs> going crazy. And I, I talked to a psychologist and. She wanted to pass life regressing, and that floored me, you know. And so, wow. you know, it was interesting. Yeah. And and so I had never really had many, many of my own personal experiences about, about past life. It's not like I ever really thought much of it. But meeting him really made me question um, more of my reality and more of who he was to me and in some other past. I, it's hard, you know, a scientific mind would probably just throw this out the window, but when you're open to things and you know you're not crazy, mm-hmm. it makes you question, well, what is this, you know, and you have well, to there question is a book. Well, there is a book. Um, there's this fantastic book called Many Lives, Many Masters by Dr. Brian Weiss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I read that about 25 years ago uh, on a recommendation from a friend, and I had never really considered that some of our issues might lie in our past. and. When I certainly had my own in those and the first introduction into such things for me, because I'd always heard people talk about it, but I'd never understood it. And then Mm -hmm. his chronicling of a patient who had some really significant and really strong feelings of that, that there was more to her history than just this life. And Mm -hmm. I think that that really, Mm -hmm. and I think he may have been even a bit skeptical himself, but it's like, when you have someone like that, it's like it's an amazing story, and it suddenly you yeah. start to think, hmm, you, you start to think mm-hmm. there's more to it, and it may not just be a spiritual thing; it may be a humanistic experience too. Mhm, mhm. Some people believe that we have cellular memory, you know, and mm-hmm. they talk about how we actually retain memory from past lives or, or from our or from our geno- genetics, you know. In our, in our genes. And even water apparently has memory, which is interesting. So, you know, wow. who knows what's what's out there? <laughs> well, there's some of the others, too. I mean, there, I, that leads me into the question about some of your other stories here and your poems. The Visitor, now that was quite an experience. Oh, oh my, yeah. I actually talked to the astronauts about that. There were a couple of them when I, I went down. It was for the 60th anniversary at NASA, and I bought my ticket. I mm-hmm. bought my way in. I saved my money, and I went down there because I was already in Florida anyway. And so um, I, I had to sit next to their table, and they let me in. He said, okay. And so they let, you know, I told them this was my science fiction book, that I wanted to be in my master's thesis. And then I had written this, you know, this book, Life, Sign, and Fortune Cookies, about this UFO I saw, this huge orb. And they were just really, you know, <clears throat> very open-minded. And said, well, that's what we're trying to do is prove that, that life exists on other planets, that I'm not, I would not be surprised out of astronauts' mouths. I would not be surprised if what you saw was extraterrestrial. And when I heard that mm-hmm. from them, I felt like so 
you know, it was wonderful because some people like, ugh, you know, who, who did, people still scoff at it, even in today's scientific era. Well, it's it's interesting because um, I had remembered I was I was very I was I was very little when it occurred, but sometime mm-hmm. in the mid or late 1960s there had been some incidents of orbs seen in New Hampshire. And I grew up in Vermont, and I forget where in mm-hmm. New Hampshire this was. And I remember mm-hmm. reading about it as a kid, and then several years after, I found this book. Uh, that was written, I think, in 1968. I found it in like a just a, a pile of free stuff, and mm-hmm. it was I think it was called UFOs Identified, and it mm-hmm. wasn't specifically trying to disprove and say all such things are not true, but they had um, come up with something called Kugelblitz, and they call it, or ball mm-hmm. lightning, and they had mm-hmm. been able to prove that at least one of those incidents had occurred because something had occurred with high tension lines. Either they were testing Mm -hmm. or something had happened and there was this wild offshoot of energy. And it may have been Mm -hmm. what what at least one of these individuals saw, but I don't think they were able to tie it all together. Well, you have to look at the behavior of ball lightning and compare it to what your own observations were. You know, ball lightning behaved a certain way. And what I saw was definitely not ball lightning. And I know Ah. because... I I watched a bunch of ball lightning videos because people were throwing that at me. And I'm like, uh, you know, I'm very true when I observe something as a writer. I try to be as mm-hmm. true as possible because I think that that is part of what our, what we are expected of or, or part of our, our role as a writer. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. our ethics. Unless we know we're yep. just doing flat out creative fun stuff. Um, so, you know, I try to report authentically when I see something like that. And I can tell you, it was not ball lightning. I even had an experience of missed time. I had had some mm-hmm. other experiences that were happening to me in that apartment. And, you know, it, it was just, yeah, I took a picture of it. And also my son's friend, a friend of my son's, who's actually now working for, um, U.S. Air Force intelligence and computers, he took a video of the same thing. He's seen it, mm. what I had seen a couple of weeks ago. And you know Terry Ray, who wrote Invasion of the Orange Orbs? He's one of our Sunday yes. Press um, authors. And I had a yep. really nice conversation with him. I was scared to death. And I called and took to talk to John Ventry at MUFON, and he got me on the ferry, and he was trying to calm me down because and he knew exactly what I saw. And he, I wow. sent the video to him, and he had MUFON take a look at it. And, yeah, it was definitely in one of what we consider a UFO. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, and, 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 and that opened doors to other to some of your writing. And um, Yeah, you know, of and, course. I, and yeah, knocking, the, knocking down the doors on NASA. <laughs> what is this? What is this? And Cheyenne Mountain in the science fiction book got involved from that. And then my biology, a biology professor upstairs at Bloomsburg, you know, I was questioning him and he wanted to know where I saw it. And he didn't see any, you know, electrical marks. There were no marks of anything like that you would expect to see. And he was very curious. And we sat down and had lunch together and um, we talked and talked about biology and extraterrestrial life and how it might be identified, which also helped me with my book. Yeah. Interesting well, stuff. Well, that's like Bloomsburg, the hot spot. Bloomsburg, <laughs> <laughs> hot spot for UFOs. <laughs> well, 
I, I have a feeling that uh, you know George Norman is going to get some calls on Coast to Coast AM about that <laughs> if he hasn't already. But you know, and that's the thing too. It's like I'm not a total skeptic. I mean, I've I've never really seen anything like that myself. But I've always yeah. had that feeling that's what some of the stories people tell. You can't you can't just flat out just say oh you know that kind of thing. No, I, you I can't. And when people speak with a real verve about anything, you know mm-hmm. that they that they're saying they're not saying it always flat out, but they're saying, "Look, I know what I saw," and mm-hmm. I, you kind of have to believe that. You kind of have to like. And when least... I read the stories of the other people that saw it, because I did that too. That's how I am. I research things. And Tori, the same experiences and feelings and what they saw was identical to the same thing I saw. And I'm like, wow. that's how I knew it was a genuine, authentic experience that we all share. Very the cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that leads me to <laughs> um, move us back to um, what I like to do is always find out about the roots of people in terms of uh, their early life and their upbringing. Mm-hmm. Now, you've talked a lot mm-hmm. about your dad. And um, mm-hmm. what are your, like, early recollections in terms of, like, what what were you read as a child? Uh, what what did you first pick up that sort of thing? Because I I could I can mm-hmm. imagine that your parents infused you from a couple of different angles. Oh, absolutely. Uh, my mother, she you know my dad read like crazy, but he was the mm-hmm. one that inspired more of my science fiction and spiritual interests and things. But my mother was was a newspaper editor. She was a published poet. Uh, my uncle has two Pulitzers. Um, in journalism, and my grandmother was a voracious writer back in the day when they didn't have computers or internet or anything, so everything she did for correspondence was writing, and it was very necessary, too, because my grandfather was a doctor, and so she had to do a lot of the correspondence for my grandfather, so, you know, writing, not only because of her historical aspects or needs, um, you know, but because of just how my family has always been drawn to it, it, it just spilled mm-hmm. over into my life. And my mother, of course, she handed me a notebook. I was I was like six years old, and she said, write. And I didn't think I could do it. And for the longest time, I'd be, Mom, I'm no good. I'm lousy. And she said, you're fine, you know. She knew how to encourage me to keep going. And, you know, that mm-hmm. was in our family line, obviously. And so I remember um, – finally writing uh, some, you know, working through when I came up with two poems, UFO story was a short story, and the pumpkin patch was Mm -hmm. a poem, and my teacher said, well, these are really good, because I was writing for a class project, and she said, we're going to submit these, and so she admitted, I was like fourth grade, I think, or and she submitted them to the New York Dispatch, and they both got published in the newspaper. (laughs) I was like, this is cool, so I got hooked on that from there. And from that point on, it's like, hey, you know, it's like somebody. It's almost, it's almost like you've been given an unpaid commission. It's like write more now. Yeah, exactly. It's very, very well spoken. It's very eloquent. That's that's the way that you would say that. And it was also expected, you know. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just always challenging myself. I want to get better. I want to grow. Uh, I will never be as good as I want to be. But that's how you have to be as an artist. You know, you have to always be challenging yourself. That's why I'm looking for a master's program right now. I want to get better. You know, I, I'm good. I've had, I've been very blessed with a fortunate background. But I want to be great. 
you know. And that comes with mm-hmm. more hard work and development of skill. And that's what my next goal is, to be great. <laughs> now, I want my Pulitzer, Tori. Well, was there a draw? I have to ask you about it. Was there a draw toward poetry or any specific style that you felt most comfortable in? Where's the, where's um, the best both, place for you right now? I think poetry and short stories. I do like to write books but I feel as though I need more craft and skill to to make them as exemplary as I wish. So, you know, when I start mm-hmm. a book, it's like, okay, this is going to take a while because this isn't something you're going to spit out. Some people, after they've been writing yep. a long time, like Stephen King and what have you, they're so formulaic and they're so used to writing that they just they literally spit them out in like months, you know. But for me, it's more like a tapestry, a long, long tapestry that I have to weave. Um, but for short stories and poetry, because I've been doing them so long, um, especially poetry, it, it's still a challenge and you still have to do your very best, but I'm more confident in them. So they tend to get completed mm-hmm. faster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In terms of the process, because people have often asked me about how do you write these these books? How do you, how do you put so much time into them? And um, I think it's different in each person. I do a fair mm-hmm. amount of preparation. That, that sometimes will take months, if not even a lot longer. Um, mm-hmm. When you're looking at a project of, of some size, like the science fiction project, which I want to ask more about, uh, <laughs> what is your preparation? What Do you have like an order of battle, so to speak? Um, usually it's based off emotion first. Like I'm working on a poem right now about graveyards. And that came mm-hmm. from a visit um, in Northumberland. You know the, the man that discovered oxygen, if you go into the um, – Oh, the Joseph Priestley house? Well, mm-hmm. I was visiting with one of my friends, uh, Javier, who is actually doing book tr- translation for me. For He's translating my poems into Spanish. We're going to have a collection, my first uh, collection of poems that are going to be English and Spanish. And we went together uh, to uh, the Joseph Priestley house to help me with book research. And he's very mm-hmm. involved when he, when he does a project with someone. And so we'd gone there, and then they said, well, there's a graveyard, and she gets buried right over there. I'm like, really? <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to take flowers. So I went to take flowers and to go to the Joseph Priestley grave, and I was sitting there, and I felt Joseph Priestley. I'm like, I swear he's nudging me, you know? And I stood right by his grave, and where the whole family's buried, and I just sat there, and I just paid attention to the experience of being in a graveyard. It just, it struck me so strong that I started writing a poem about it. And I think it's going to be very good when it's done. Uh, And then of course, another poem I've been focused on lately is about uh, mortality and death. And I'm going to include those in in the collection of a book I'm working on. It's called Journeys to the Asclepia. Is that how you pronounce it? I'm the Greek pronunciation, but it's basically poems about medicine and healing. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Wow. So, yeah, I, I, you know, again, I think it's from that instant, that instant emotion that, that triggered mm-hmm. me first. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of also, you, you've had, uh, you, you've had great teachers. I've been fortunate to have a couple yeah. of really good ones in my life. Yeah. Um, at, when you were at Bloomsburg, you had a professor named Jerry Wemple and it sounds oh, like yeah. he himself was Tell me about him, because I think there's so much. Was he a writer himself? Oh, yeah. Jerry's a very well-known writer. I mean, in our area, at least. Mm-hmm. He writes a lot about Pennsylvania and 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's won some decent awards. I think he graduated from Amherst. You know, he's he's got tremendous skill. But one of the gifts that I found uh, personally important uh, for me was his acceptance of you. You know, and that's what you have to mm-hmm. do when you're a creative writing teacher is that you don't judge your students. You certainly guide them right. and you, you move them forward, but you don't tell them you can't do this, you can't do that. Jerry really nurtures your core. He nurtures your inner being. And that's one of his uh-huh. gifts as a teacher. So it was like he really helps you to find who you are, and then he gives you this confidence and this love, you know, this sense of acceptance that really grows. You flower. Mm-hmm. That's his talent, mm-hmm. I think. And that's in, in, when you get that sort of recognition. And I, I can think in my own in my own life the same thing. Of when you get that from someone that you look up to, it must it is it's it's mind blowing at times. <laughs> yeah, well, we had a lot in common too. You know, he was in the Navy. My dad was in the Navy. There were also some correlations between him that remind me of my father in a lot of ways. So yeah. I I thought an instant connection with him. Yeah. That is very cool. Now, I think um, there's another thing, too, is with some of your other work, um, this is something that I always get a question about from different folks about. And I remember um, we were talking about poets and so forth. I have mm-hmm. um, I've been reading Sylvia Plath's uh, diaries. This is like I'm sort of plowing back through it, looking for some things. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she wrote at great length in her diaries about uh, her work. And it seemed like she put more work into her journals than she than it seemed with some of her work. And that's not a slur on mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah. She wrote at great length about, well, this is what I plan to do. And mm-hmm. she was like, she would like take you through the process of some of her poetry or some of her short stories. And oh, one of the things that she agonized, and she agonized at times over getting into print. Because when she was in high school, she had gotten, I think she had gotten a poem published in, in a national magazine. She was in a contest. I think she, she did fairly well in it. I don't think mm-hmm. she won overall, but she placed. And for mm-hmm. her, it was like, well, it wasn't so much can I top that. It's I have to keep doing it. And she would mm-hmm. map out, I'm going after this magazine, this one, this one, this one. And mm-hmm. her husband, uh, you know, Ted Hughes, had gotten some of his poetry published. And I think there was a little competition where it's like, I can't match Ted, but I'm going to do something. Here's the thing of how do I, how do you get into publications what worked for you to, to get recognized and to finally get someone to say, okay, we're going to print this? Oh, well, there's a lot of different ways to go about it from, from my humble experiences here. Um, first of all, I think, you know, having a mother who and, and an uncle who have already been published and, and won awards and published in journals, that gives you, mm-hmm. you know, the, the – First off, the belief, because I meet so many students, like while I was in Bloomsburg, I was older, of course, than a lot of the students, but things would be like, oh, wow, you're so, you have so many publications. I'm like, look at I'm like, it's, it's just hard work. It's submitting mm-hmm. like a crazy woman or a crazy man. You know, I was literally, when I got published, and, I, and it's like mining for gold. You know, you, when you're not a, 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 an immediately recognized name, what you have to do is muscle it. And for me, what that means mm-hmm. is, like, I would submit sometimes 20, 30 times a week, you know. I would just make that my, this is my secretarial duty as an author. 
And a lot of writers, mm-hmm. they, they're lazy that way or they don't have the confidence or they dream about it, but they don't do it. So you have to right. do it. You have to submit. The other way is learning the market better, and I'm trying to get, you know, improve my skills on that is looking up the market, like poets and writers, for example, or the poets market, um, both of those, the magazine and the, and the book, are very helpful. I learned a lot from them about, you know, from, from those books and, and magazines about how to submit and how to uh, focus your work. Um, and then sometimes, you know, I'd, I've even published in places where people will say, well, why would they even do that? You know, one of my professors, mm-hmm. I published a poem in the Monterey News Herald, and he said, why would you submit there? You don't know their politics. You don't know anything about them. I said, well, I just had a feeling they'd take me, and they did. You know, so sometimes it's intuitive. You know, it, it's about mm-hmm. when you think you, you feel you might fit. So there's a wide range of ways to get published. And But, again, I really think a lot of it, you know, of course, socializing and building friendships. Some of my publications have come from wonderful friendships that I've met as an author who have recognized my work or, and liked it. And so they would publish mm-hmm. it for me. But, you know, it's a mixture of things. But really, really, I think, Tori, the biggest thing is hard work, is just taking the time to mm-hmm. submit. I see. Yeah, and that really mm-hmm. is a it. lot. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> a I, lot. It's, I've often. <laughs> I've often likened it to finding a job because it's like yeah. um, finding an agent when I had out. one. Some years. Yeah, sending the resume out, going online, having to go through all of the flips and twists that you need to do to mm-hmm. submit your resume or to get in touch with people. And it's the same thing for me. You, you know, like I, would, I tell people the writer's market is a good example of it. Um, there's another publication that is specifically for presses, small presses and magazines. And mm-hmm. for me, it was just getting signed, getting signed to Sunbury Press and now Brown Posey was just mm-hmm. basically doing a book signing with, with, with someone who was already, Robert Walton was already on the Sunbury roster. And he said, you ought to talk mm-hmm. to my publisher. And it took a while, but it did mm-hmm. happen. And it was, and, and so, yeah, it's a, sometimes it's better to be lucky than be good, but at the same time, you do have to do the work, <laughs> right? Right. Um, <laughs> Now, as we go along here, um, I want to ask also, uh, there's one specific thing that, that you did that I think would other authors would really be interested in. For Life Science, mm-hmm. you read your poems and stories to a professor at Bucknell. First, what prompted it, and how did that go? That was really interesting. Oh, uh, I think you're, me- you're meaning uh, William Halk, Dr. Halk. Um, yeah, he's a friend, he's a psychologist and a friend, and, you know, I, I just, I just happened onto him as I do with people, and he's just, he's also an English, he was also a professor of English, psychology and English, and so it's just a wonderful connection, and I would just, you like, he's in his, like, late 70s, early 80s, I've kind of adopted him, like, grandpa, you know, and he mm-hmm. listens to me when I have something I need to, I want to share with him, and so, you know, it's just a wonderful friendship, and, um, that, you know, it's nice to have that background as somebody that will support you that has those types of backgrounds, both psychological and English, because um, they can give you some ideas and ways of, of touching people emotionally, uh, other ways of maybe manipulating their mind, manipulating their, their, their um, emotional primers, I guess. That's what we're supposed to do. You know, we're supposed to make people feel. That's, what our, that's one of our jobs as a writer. Mm-hmm. 
Well, we must also touch on uh, your previous publication with 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 us. Um, Remember the Sun: Poems of Nature and Inspiration, and um, mm-hmm. this. Um, this is just a little north of where I live in Harrisburg is a lot of mm-hmm. uh, really interesting photos. And, um, uh, you know, this, this, uh, this was almost a step back in time to my growing yeah. up in Vermont. When I looked at some of these old pictures, tell us a little about that book. Um, you know, that was inspired again from Jerry Wimple's class. We had to write a poem about Sunbury or about our area that we lived in. Because, again, that's one of his focal okay. points. He really teaches the writers to look at their local natural geography. And um, mm-hmm. so, you know, mine was Sunbury. That's where I was living at the time. And, I, you know, I'd already, I felt comfortable at the time when I was living in Sunbury. I'm not there at this time. But when I first moved in there, I just, you know, I felt like, it was just this old Pennsylvania town that I just melted right into, you know, and mm-hmm. I felt a, I felt a connection with the town and I was very interested in its history. I mean, if you really take the time to learn about this silly little town, you think it's silly. It's really not. I mean, they have some wonderful, wonderful history. And, and as you know, I, my, my brother is a historian. And so, you know, history is a natural part of my curiosity anyway. And so I just, you know, I bonded with the with the energy there, and it it helped me to create a lot of poems. And again, I also attribute that to Jerry Wimple too for helping me, you know, explore and appreciate my local, you know, my local geography. And there's more that you have also done. You were the former poet laureate of Perry County, and you mm-hmm. also founded the Pennsylvania Association of Pennsylvania Poets Laureate. Tell yes. us about this organization. Yes. Um, that started when I won the Poet Laureate Post uh, in Perry County some years back, and um, I had decided, you know, what ha- see that, that it kind of came together when when Governor Rendell cut uh, Sam Hazo as our first and only Poet Laureate. So we have this mm-hmm. one Poet Laureate for the state of Pennsylvania that's just hanging there that, and we have no more. You know, we don't have any others. And I was just like, well, what a shame. You know, it, it just, I mean, at least for me as a poet, it was very important that Pennsylvania have a poet laureate post. So I got together, I formulated this idea, and I'm with a, different people, and we all decided, well, let's, um, let's create an, an organization. If we can't have a state poet laureate, all of the local laureates from all of the counties can get together and at least have a poet laureate organization. So that's what I, I founded and created. And, um, you know, we did very well. We'd have, we'd have uh, performances with uh, PCN. Um, and, you know, we'd go and speak at different shows and radio. And we, we just went all over. We even went over to, we went to um, Washington, D.C. And uh, we spoke at Congressional Hall, all reading poetry. And um, we had a blast. But the problem was getting the funding. Uh, and not that we didn't mm-hmm. try, but they don't. The government in the state, Pennsylvania doesn't want to have a poet laureate post, so it's not really a priority to fund poet laureate organizations. So, you know, I thought mm-hmm. it was political on some aspects. We did actually have um, the U.S. poet laureate come down, um, and uh, this was last couple of years ago. And Elizabeth Town College, he came down and met with us, and we had a nice dinner, and um, mm-hmm. it was quite wonderful. But I just couldn't do it anymore. But it was a fun run. We had a blast. 
<laughs> and that's the important thing for us is to enjoy what we're doing and not feel like we're being, you know, we're, we're, it's not always nose to the grindstone. I mean, I think there's right. there's just a real joy in 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 creating either a world or or creating a story based on something. And I mean, I always have taken joy from what I've done. Yeah, and I think one of the last exciting things I wanted to share um, is Kevin Sorbo. I don't know if you know the actor Kevin Sorbo from Andromeda, yes. and he was in Steel Hercules, and I have this really fun, oh, my, if you go on my Amazon author page, it's a really fun promo from him that he did for my book, and it was just a thrill because you know how I'm a huge sci-fi buff, and I, I just I just happened to ask, you know, I went on Celeb DM and said, would he do a promo for my book, you know, and of course, I figured he'd probably ask, like, for gazillions and thousands of dollars, and he did it. He did it for me for 35 bucks. <laughs> like, Kevin Sorbo! <laughs> so excited. So, Sorry. <laughs> well, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, I did see that, and now I remember it. I was like, oh, wow, that is, that is cool. Um, well, let's, let us, as we close, Melanie, what is yeah. next for you? You're talking about this sci-fi novel. Uh, yes. Can you give us an insight on what you're doing? Um, well, I'm without giving any spoilers, <laughs> it's, um, right. it's an actual history. I'm, I'm drawing from a lot of what I've read online, you know, and about in UFO history and a program. Uh, it has a lot to do with how our DNA becomes reactivated when we are visited uh, and mm-hmm. how they're calling certain people with certain bloodlines. Uh, they're trying to retrace them and, and bring them back. Um, mm-hmm. it's a lot more than that, uh, and again, I'm still trying to figure it out. But it's also um, it's called alien prophecy because it also has elements um, of people who are before they're getting visited, they're having these premonitions of, you know, of, of where they're supposed to go, and kind of like um, oh, that sci-fi third, that sci-fi movie that um, the the third kind. Um, yes. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. But, but I have, like I said, I'm still formulating, but it's mostly just uh, going to be a powerful book about our connection between Earth and ETs and, and investigating that. Right. Well, Melanie, my final question is uh, for aspiring authors, uh, for those who really want to do it or, or are maybe struggling with it, is there any one piece of advice that you could give a person of any age what you need to do? Um. Again, read a lot, um, mm-hmm. write a lot. You know, my my uncle, coming from a man with two Pulitzers, he would tell me, write every single day. Even if you think you can't, just write something. Write every day. Use that muscle. Um, and believe in yourself. You know, it's a tough grind. You know, I'm 52, and I've I've got a lot of publications to my credit, but I still don't have my Pulitzer. I still would like to have some you know, other publications with other publishers that I haven't reached yet, but you can't give up. And you have to love what you do and you have to have faith because if you don't, you'll get knocked down tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Well, Melanie Sims, thank you very much for your time on the show. <laughs> I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, Tori. It was wonderful to get to know you and talk to you today. Thank you. We have been speaking with Melanie Sims, author of Life Signs and Fortune Cookies, available on brownposypress.com. I'm your host, Tori Gates. Please check out my works on Brown Posey Press, A Moment in the Sun, Live from the Cafe, and the soon-to-be-released Searching for Roy Buchanan. This is the BookSpeak Network. <laughs>